so we're starting a brand new series today um, called Right in the Eye, and we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, now, since today is Valentine's Day, I thought we would look at a story of a guy and a girl, but it is definitely not a love story. It's one of the strangest things that you are ever going to read in Scripture. In fact, it's stranger than fiction. And if you've never read the book of Judges, I want to encourage you to read the book of Judges over the next six weeks um, because you're going to get some really good stuff out of it. Now, the book of Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. It comes right after Joshua and right before Ruth. If you remember anything about your Bible history, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. He leads them around the, uh, the, the wilderness, and then he dies and Joshua takes over. Joshua leads them into the promised land. He helps them begin to uh, settle into their places. Uh, They had an inheritance in the promised land. And the book of Judges um, actually comes from Joshua dies in 13 BC and they're in the land. The book of Judges happens over the next 330 years, basically until David comes. The first king, the first, uh, when they become a monarch, he was actually Saul, but Saul wasn't the great king. So basically Judges goes from 330 years to the greatest king in the Israel's history. History, King David. Now, uh, there were 12 tribes. They had a common ancestry. They had a common religion. They had a common language. And you may ask, why 12 tribes? Well, if you remember again, Old Testament history, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob was later, his name was changed to Israel, and that's where the nation got its name. Jacob, or Israel, has 12 sons, and each one of his sons becomes the head of a tribe of Israel. It's one nation, 12 tribes, and the tribe is called by the name of that son. Now, they have no king because God is their king. I want you to realize this, and I want you to repeat this. They have no king because who is their king? One more time. They have no king because who is their king? All right, now we got that started. Now, here's what's what's going on. Years before this, when Moses was still living, God says to the Israelites through Moses, he's predicting the promised land. He's telling them all of this great stuff is going to be coming. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams, pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. What Moses is doing is he is reminding them of all the stuff God did. And he says, you're going to go into a land, and and they called it in the Old Testament, a land flowing with milk and honey. That means every resource they needed, all uh, all of the produce, all of the fruits, vegetables, they had water. They even had minerals that they could mine and make incredible stuff out of. He said, this is a great land. It was prepared for you by God. And he says, when you go in, be careful. Here's what he says um, in verse 11. But that is a time to be careful. When you enter this prosperous land, it's a time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty, you do not forget the Lord, your God and disobey his commands, regulations and decrees that I'm giving you today. And then he just rehearses all this stuff. He said, God took you through the wilderness. He fed you manna that nobody had ever heard of. Manna actually means what is it? He said, we, God fed you this incredible bread. Nobody had ever heard of God fed you meat. He said, God made your clothes for 40 years, not wear out. That's just amazing. The only person I knew that had 40 year old clothes was my father and his closet was full of them. I thought it was pretty impressive. So he said, your clothes didn't wear out. And and here's the other thing he said, for 40 years, your feet did not swell because I, the Lord, your God took care of you. Now look at verse 17. He did all this. God did all this. So you would never say to yourself, I've achieved this wealth in my own strength and my energy. God knew he was telling them ahead of time. You're going to go in this land. You're going to build big houses. You're going to have all of these barns just overflowing with produce. And you're going to say, I did this. And Moses says, no, 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 no. God's telling you way ahead of time. Don't do that. He says, he did this so you would never say to yourself, I've achieved this wealth in my own strength and my energy. So who was their king? God was their, who was their king? 
All right. He has given them his land and he's given them his law. And he says, you obey my law, you'll be blessed. You disobey my law, you'll be cursed. Now, Israel had a, had an issue that was very common to us today. Israel didn't like anybody telling them what to do. I mean, they really didn't like anybody telling them what to do. Does that sound like anybody around here? Uh, yeah, sounds like Americans, sounds like Christians, sounds like you, sounds like me, right? Now, because Israel had this issue of nobody's going to tell me what to do, they went through this cycle in the book of Judges, and you will see it over and over again if you read this book. And here it is. Disobedience. They would disobey God's laws. They'd been warned, don't disobey God's laws. They would disobey God's laws. God would remove his hand of protection from them. Then they would a disaster would come upon them, usually in the form of another country coming in and invading them and taking them over, making them slaves. In the midst of the disaster, they would cry out to God, oh, God, have mercy on us. And God would answer and send a deliverer. So over and over and over in Judges, disobedience. Obedience, disaster, deliverance happened over and over again. Now, here is where you and I, I think, have a whole lot in common with the Israelites. Because no matter who you are, no matter whether you grew up in church, whether you're Catholic, Episcopal, Baptist, whatever you are, it doesn't, every one of us have disobeyed something or someone. Every one of us have disobeyed either our parents or maybe our religious upbringing, maybe our own conscience. And when we disobey, Disaster follows. Now I'm going to ask you another question. I'm going to tell you the answer to this question. You're going to say, my disobedience. All right. Why did disaster come? When you choose to disobey, God removes his hand of protection from you and disaster is going to come upon you. And you may not have called out to God when you disobeyed. You may not have called out to God when disaster came upon your life, but you called out to someone and someone had mercy on you. Someone gave you a second chance. Someone bailed you out of jail. Someone, um, someone gave you another chance. Someone took you to rehab. They paid a fine something for you. And after they bailed you out, you said, I'll never do that again. I'll never, ever, ever go back there again. And you didn't for about seven days. Y'all laughed harder than the first service. I was working on that one. The book of Judges is about a group of people that over and over and over, they disobeyed God, disaster, they cried out, God sent a deliverer. Now, we're actually going to look at the end of the book of Judges, and this is the, one of the strangest stories in the book, in the whole Bible. And, and that's saying something, because there's a lot of strange stories in the Bible. This one kind of takes the cake. I told you, it's not a love story. But this is going to show us, and we're going to start here. Next week, we're going to go to the, the first of Judges, and we'll get started there. But we're going to start with this last story. And this shows what happens when an individual, when a group, or when a nation says, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. It shows what happens when people do that. I do my thing, you do your thing. My thing may not be for you, your thing may not be for me, but my thing is none of your business. Your thing is none of my business. I'm going to do what I think is right. You do what you think is right. Kind of sounds like America right now. That's why I think this is a relevant series. So we're going to start in uh, Judges chapter 19. It's actually three chapters long. So I'm going to give you the highlights and then I'm going to show you some key verses. The first one is 19.1. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem 
in Judah. All right. So let's put that map up there. All right. So here's the, the Ephraim. Now these are the 12 tribes and you'll notice that Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Levi didn't get to have an inheritance in the, in the promised land because God said the Levites are going to be the priests and I will be their inheritance. They will, they will serve in the temple and, and the people will give to the temple and that's how they'll get their, their, uh, their money to live on in their lives. And so that you won't see Levi anywhere because the Levites, their inheritance was God and they lived in all the different territories. So this Levite was living in Ephraim and he takes a concubine. A concubine is a second class wife. It's basically a slave that the, uh, that the, the man has sexual rights to. So she has no rights. She's a piece of property and the Bible never condones this. The Bible merely reports facts. This is one thing that's very different between Christianity and other religions. Other religions clean stuff up. Christianity never does. Never does. It shows you how desperately wicked people are and how incredibly merciful and holy God is. All right? So when, when a Levite, somebody who is a priest in the country, takes a concubine, which God has forbidden, that tells you how far the whole nation has gone down the tubes because they've turned their backs on God. Now, we're told that... Um, she, she lived with him for a little while and then she's unfaithful and she runs away and she goes back to Bethlehem. All right. Put that back up there. Got a new guy on there. All right. Bethlehem down here. So she runs away. She lives up here. She runs away. Her father lives in Bethlehem. So she goes back to Bethlehem. Now, after four months, we don't know why four months, but after four months, the Levite decides to go get her back. And he shows up at their house in, in Bethlehem and, and he talks to her father. Now the Bible actually calls it father-in-law, but I don't think that's really accurate. I think it's concubine-in-law because, and, and because concubine-in-law is too long for me to say every time, I'm going to say CIL stands for concubine-in-law. All right. So he shows up at the concubine-in-law's house, CIL, and this guy, CIL, welcomes him in and he says, Hey, let's have a party. And we're not sure why he was so welcoming. Except that maybe because it was a very big deal if a woman were to leave uh, a man, especially somebody in this situation, this could cost the CIL a lot of money, a lot of produce. We don't know. But he goes, hey, my good friend, come in. Let's drink. So they get drunk. They drink that night and they get drunk. The next morning, the Levite wakes up and he's got a hangover and it's later than he'd planned. And he says, oh, I got to go. And the, and the CIL says, no, 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 let's have a party. And he's like, okay. And they drink again. They get drunk. And the next day he wakes up with a hangover and he says, I got to go. And he goes, no, 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 let's have a party. Okay. This happens for five days. Finally, on the last day, he wakes up with a hangover. He's like, dude, I'm done. I've got to go. So he loads up his, his concubine. He has two donkeys. He's got his concubine. He's got a servant. And you've got the Levite. And they start on their journey. Now, put the, you got the map? Okay, still up here. Now, on their journey, it's, it's later in the day than he had planned to leave. And so they're not going to get as far as he wants to go back to his hometown. So... They leave Bethlehem and they get up here by Jerusalem. At this time, it was called Jebus, J-E-B-U-S, because the Jebusites were the ones in control of Jerusalem. The, the Israelites had not taken all of the land yet. They'd been disobedient to God, so they didn't have all the promised land. So the servant said, let's stay in Jebus. And, and the Levite says, oh no, I will not stay there. We're going to go to a place that I know is controlled by Israelites. It had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with the laws of hospitality. So he says, we're going to go to a different town. So they go on up here somewhere in, in the, the territory of Benjamin and they come to a town named Gibeah. And so Gibeah is one that, that is controlled by the, the Benjamites. And so he says, we're going to stay here. They do what anybody would do in his situation. They go to the town square, usually around a well, and they sit there and they wait until somebody comes and invites them home. Now the laws of, um, 
what did I call that? The law, where was it? Laws of physics, hospitality, close physics, hospitality. The laws of hospitality said that if you saw someone sitting in your town square, especially if he was an Israelite, you were required to invite them to come to your home and you were supposed to provide them with everything. Well, they sit there and they sit there and it's getting later and later. And finally, a man comes in who used to live in the hill uh, somewhere in Ephraim and he sees them and he says, Hey, come to my house. And, And we get a hint in verse 20 that trouble is about to be brewing. Here's what he says. You are welcome to stay with me, the old man said. I will give you anything you might need, but whatever you do, don't spend the night in the square. Now, this is an Israelite territory. He specifically chose this place so he would be um, he would be safe. And this old man is saying, don't stay out here. Whatever you do, don't stay out at night. Now it gets really weird. Bible tells us that a crowd of worthless men, and I looked at several different translations and and it was translated different ways, this phrase worthless men, troublemakers, wicked, sexual perverts. These are the different translations of this. It's an Old Testament phrase that means people involved in idolatry, drunkenness, rebellion, and sodomy. Worthless men. So a group of worthless men surround the house and begin banging on the door. And here's what they shout. Bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. Now, this had very little to do with with satisfying a sexual desire. It had everything to do with humiliating them. And when I was reading this this week, I thought, man, this sounds exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. Because you remember when the two angels went to, to, to Sodom and Gomorrah and they were going to rescue Lot and his family? They go to the, the house and that night some worthless men bang on the door and they said, bring out those men so that we can have sex with them. This was a Canaanite deal where they would um, they would abuse the people and they would humiliate them so that they would leave and say, whatever you do, don't go back down there to, to, the, to the Benjamite territory because they will humiliate you. This is what it was designed to do. The old man steps outside and he says, no, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house and such a thing would be shameful. So he said to rape him and humiliate him would be shameful. It would be evil. And if it stopped right there, you'd go, man, this is what you'd expect of the scripture. The next thing it gets even weirder. The old man says, here, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you and you can abuse them and do whatever you like, but don't do such a shameful thing to this man. It's shameful to do it to the man. It's not shameful to do it to the women. That just blows my mind, but they wouldn't listen. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. The men of the town abused her all night, taking turns, raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. And at this point, you should be deeply disturbed at the actions of the the people of God. Next morning, the Levite finds her at the doorstep. The Bible says that her hands were on the threshold and he speaks to her like a person would talk to a dog. He says, get up, get up, let's go. No concern for her well-being. No, how are you? He says, get up, let's go. And she doesn't respond because she's dead. So he loads up her body and, and they go back to Ephraim. And he has lots of time to think on that journey. And by the time he gets home, he is really worked up and he wants vengeance. Not for what they did to the woman. Because after all, who pushed her out there? He did. He wants vengeance because his property has been damaged. So he writes a letter, but a letter's not enough. He cuts the concubine into 12 pieces and sends the letter and a body part to all 12 tribes of Israel. He tells them she was raped and murdered and he conveniently left out the little part of the story where he's the one that pushed her out there to be abused and raped. Now, if you're an Israelite at that time, FedEx comes down your... Your 
street and says, you got a package and a letter. And you open up, this is, by the way, this is Omaha steaks. I don't think this is how they sent them. That's why Rachel's laughing. Janie's been buying Omaha steak stuff with her blow money. Dave Ramsey, you have some blow money. You can spend on whatever you want to every month. She, she loves this because it's, anyway. So, so you read the letter and say, this has never happened. This is a bad thing that happened. You open up and there's a leg, there's a foot, there's a head. Holy cow. How do you respond if you get a body part? Run away screaming. Well, let's see what they did. Verse 30. Everyone who saw it said, such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. Think about it. What are we going to do? Who's going to speak up? They said, our nation has reached an all time low. So they agreed. These worthless people must pay. And so they all gather. The 11 tribes gather together. Benjamin doesn't come. The 11 tribes gather together. They number 400,000 warriors and they listen to the Levite. The Levite tells his story. He tells the same thing again, leaves out the part that he pushed her outside. He's, and they said, these men must pay. So they show up at Benjamin and they say, bring us out the worthless men. And, and the Benjamites go, uh-uh, we ain't doing it. And so the Benjamites get 26,000 warriors and they go to war. 400,000 against 26,000. The first day, the Benjamites kill 22,000 of the 400,000. So they go back and they cry and they say, oh, what do we do? What do, we do? The next day they go and attack again. The Benjamites win again. The second day they kill 18,000, 40,000 of the 400,000 are killed. And so on this third day, they go up and they cry before the Lord and they say, oh God, what should we do? And they offer burn offerings and sacrifices. And they say, God, should we go? And God says, go, I will give the Benjamites into your hands tomorrow. So the 360,000 attack the 26,000 and destroy them. And when I say destroy them, they didn't just kill those people. They went into the towns and murdered every man, woman, child, every uh, animal, and they burned the cities to the ground. This went way beyond justice. This was vengeance of the worst kind. Somehow, the Bible tells us that 300 or 600 Benjamites escaped and they go out and hide in the wilderness. That night, when you should be celebrating, oh, we want a tremendous victory, the 11 tribes get together and they start to mourn. They say, we have completely destroyed one branch of our family history. We've taken out an entire tribe. And somebody goes, um, actually, there's 600 left. And they said, but they're all men. So, so how are they going to, exactly, how are they going to, how, how are they going to have families? And they said, what to do, what to do, what to do? And somebody goes, hey, wait, 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 what? What if we found a city who refused to send anybody to help us? And they said, is there such a city? And somebody said, I don't think Jabesh Gilead sent anybody. Anybody here from Jabesh Gilead? Nobody raises their hands. So they march out and they murder everybody in Jabesh Gilead, burn it down, and they keep 400 virgins. So they send a message to these 600 Benjamites and they say, hey, we got bad news and we got good news. Bad news is we killed everybody. Good news is we kidnapped some virgins for you. Bad news is there's only 400. They said, but we have a plan. Now, when they all got together, they said, none of our daughters may ever marry a Benjamite because this is so bad. We can't believe this is done. So they swore an oath. So what to do, what to do, what to do. They said, we know, here's what we're going to do. They tell the 600, well, they tell the, the 200 that no longer have, you know, there were 400 virgins. So there's 400 guys who had wives. There were 200 left. They tell them, here's what you do. You go to Shiloh. They have this little ceremony every year where the virgins come out and they dance. You hide in the bushes. And when you see one, you like, you take her. And so they did. 
And so at the end, it's just like they picked up their virgin over the shoulder and they marched back to the, the land of Benjamin to start over from the scorched earth. There's nothing left. And the book of Judges ends. There's no heroes, nothing good. It ends. Oh my gosh. Next week's better than this week. Has a happier story than this week. But now I know, I know a lot of y'all when, when your kids were little, you, you had a little baby Bible book and you read stories to your kids every night. That one wasn't in there. Wasn't in there. <laughs> Somehow they skipped it. Because, you know, I could just hear my son. I used to read. I could hear Caleb. Hey, Dad, I want to hear the one about the concubine and the chainsaw. <laughs> I'd be going, no, we only read that one on Halloween. <laughs> Dude. Let me read you the last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Which is not true because we know God is... But this is what it says. Those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Here's, here's how we're going to say it. We're going to make it very, very simple. This is, this is how I translate that verse. In those days, no one knew right from wrong. So everyone did what they thought was right. Now, I want you to, we're going to walk back a little bit through this story. And I want you to think every character in the story did what they thought was right at the time. So the men of Gibeah, we don't like strangers coming to our town. We have a right to, to say who stays in our territory and who doesn't, don't we? Yes, we do. It's only right that we teach this stranger a lesson. Bring him out. They pound on the door. The Levite looks at the woman. And he goes, it's your fault we're in this mess. If you hadn't been unfaithful, if you hadn't run away, if your father hadn't gotten me drunk every night so that we left too late in the day, this wouldn't happen. After all, you're a piece of property. It's only right that you should face the situation in my place. She's murdered. What does he expect? Nothing good was going to come from sending the... To say you had no choice, but I've got automatic, semi-automatic weapons, not automatic, automatic weapons at my house. Worthless men surround my house. And you ain't getting my daughter. Right? He sends her out. What does he expect is going to happen? It's your fault. And he says, well, you know, I can't just write a letter. I'll cut up the concubine because that'll get their attention. That's the right thing to do. The 11 tribes, they come together and they said, the right thing to do is we need to teach them a lesson. The Benjamites, they say the right thing to do is, is we're going to resist you because you don't have a right to tell us what to do. These are our people. You can't tell us what to do. The right thing to do is we're going to fight you. And, and the, the 11 tribes say the right thing is we're going to kick your butt. Everybody thinks they're doing what's right. And after the slaughter, oh, it's only right that we should get some women for these 600 men. It's only right that we should kidnap these four. It's, everyone did what was right in their own eyes and the result was chaos. And this is why I think this may be the most significant series I've done in a long time. Because some of that thinking, I want to do what I want to do with whom I want to do it, is in you. Now in America we say, I want to do what I want with whom I want when I want. But we had one little condition. We say, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Who's it going to hurt if I do what I want to do? 
Well, let me give you a few problems with this line of thinking. First of all, only the super rich can afford this line of thinking. Because eventually, if you do what you want to do, you're going to break some laws. You're going to need an attorney. Maybe a whole bunch of attorneys like O.J. Simpson. You know, his movie just came back out. He needed a whole bunch of lawyers because he wanted to do what he wanted to do. And he still didn't. Now he's in jail. You see, the, the lifestyle of I want to do what I want with whom I want when I want doesn't work for normal people, everyday people. You never hear a fifth grade teacher say to her class on Friday, okay, students, I want you to do whatever you want to do all weekend long. Don't you let anyone tell you what to do. Class dismissed. That doesn't happen at Slocum, does it? No. No. You never hear a CPS worker saying to a couple or to an individual, all you need to do is master this idea of doing what you want when you want. When you get that down, I'll gladly give you your children back. You never hear a a judge, a parole officer, a guard, a police officer telling people, hey, just do what you want to do. Why? Because they live on the consequence side of life. They know this doesn't work. They know people get hurt. Here's another problem with doing what you want. Tends to work out better for men than for women. In this story, who was better off every time, the men or the women? The men. Because when men start doing what they want, when they want, with whom they want, women always suffer. Because eventually women become property, they become an object, and a way to make money. And I want you to think about through history, whenever women have had freedom, whenever women have had rights, they've always had to fight for them. Why? Because it was going to cost some dudes power and money. Here's another problem with doing what you want. You can't do what is right in your own eyes without eventually hurting someone. You're going to hurt someone. And let me just give you four different, different people you're going to hurt. First of all, you're going to hurt you. God created you to worship something. Maximum freedom is found under the authority of God. When you step out from under his authority, you become dominated by the thing that you worship. Whatever you worship owns you. So some of you worship things and now you're a slave to debt. Some of you worshiped a person and now you're in a relationship that you don't know how to get out of. Some of you worshiped a bottle or you worshiped some pill and now you're an addict. And here's, here's the thing, whatever it is that's mastered you started off as an expression of I'm going to do what I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to show them. That I'm in charge, but now you're no longer in charge because the thing you worshiped has mastered you. So you're going to hurt yourself. Second, you're going to hurt people with you. How many times you heard people say, I hear this all the time, especially I hear it when I visit people in jail. I had these friends and that's why I'm in here. Because if you're with people doing wrong things, you may get swept up in the deal, but probably you're going to do the wrong thing. When I was a sophomore in high school, a bunch of kids wanted to go to Red River, New Mexico skiing. And my mom said, I think that's a bad idea. And I go, mom, you just don't trust me. And that was, you know, it was meant as a, as, as a weapon. Well, I trust you, but I don't trust the others. One, you know what my mom should have said? You darn right. I don't trust you because you're an idiot. Because we went up there and did stupid things. Got in trouble. 
Every time I got in trouble, it was either me being around the dumb kids that get caught or it was me being the dumb kid who got caught and the friends with me got in trouble too. You're going to hurt people with you. Next one is you're going to hurt people who care about you. Teenagers, you cannot hurt yourself without hurting your parents. If you're married, you cannot hurt yourself without hurting your spouse. Doing what you want will hurt people who care about you. And then the last one is people coming after you. And after I wrote this down, I thought, you know, that could sound like the police or the government, people coming after you. That's not what I meant. I meant the next generation. Some of you are messed up. Actually, we say all of us are messed up. Some of you are dysfunctional. Some of you are just flat weird. I mean, we we actually embrace that. We're not proud of it, but that's who we are. And some of you can trace some of the stuff, some of the junk you have in your life, you can trace it back to your parent or maybe a grandparent who said, I'm going to do what I want and it's not going to hurt anybody. And it's still hurting future generations. My mom was, was beaten by her dad. My grandmother was beaten by her husband. All of my, my mom's seven siblings were beaten by my granddad. I didn't know all that till I was 25 years old. And, and my mom treated men differently because of the way her dad treated her and the family. She told my dad one time, she said, um, she said, if you ever touch me, you'll die in your sleep. That impacted how she treated dad. It impacted how she treated me and my brothers. It impacted how I saw women for a long time. So don't, it's a lie from hell that you can do what you want and it's not going to hurt anybody coming after you. Now, why isn't it like this? It should be like this. I should be able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it helps somebody. Where's that? Should be in the church, right? That should be what we, we should be going all out to help people. Whether they're in the kingdom or not, that's irrelevant. We should be the most helping organization on the planet. And certainly, you know, each individual church in their, in their sphere of influence. So let me just, let's just admit the obvious for a minute. We're hypocrites, all of us, because here's what we do. Dad says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. What do we, we, we do it. And then when we get in trouble, who do we call? Dad, I'm in jail. It's not a field trip. I did that one. Call my dad at two o'clock one morning. This is back when y'all only had landlines. You know, we didn't have cell phones. I said, dad, and there's all, we're all sitting in the, in the police department and everybody's like, who's going to call first? And I'm like, I will. So I dial dad. He goes, what? I said, I'm in jail. And he said, good. Keep your butt there. And I said, yes, sir. And I went to hang up. And right before I hang up, he goes, hey, what do you need? I went, I need you to bail me out. The one that I thought was a prude, dad doesn't know anything. He's so old. He doesn't know Jack. He's the one I called when I was in trouble. Your mom says, stay away from that young man. He's nothing but trouble. He's going to abuse you. He's going to leave you. Oh, mom, but I love him. You don't know what you're talking about, mom. Then when he abandons you, or when he gets you pregnant and he abandons you, or when he gets someone else pregnant and abandons you, who do you call? Mom, I don't have anybody else. 
Isn't that interesting? The one we choose to disobey, the rules we choose not to follow, that's the person we call. It's what the Israelites did. Let me show you a verse about God as we finish this up. James 1.17, half-brother Jesus says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So every good thing you have comes from your heavenly Father. Good rules come from your heavenly Father. Good morals come from your heavenly Father. Good relationships come from your heavenly Father. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control comes from your heavenly Father. Even his rules are good and they're given to you because he loves you. And by the way, the thing that you, you so wanted to do, it doesn't love you. The thing you were going to show, nobody's my boss. They don't love you. Your heavenly father loves you. So isn't it strange when our world falls apart because of our own choices to break the rules, we cry out to the one whose rules we've broken. Oh God, where are you? Every time the Israelites disobeyed, disaster came into their lives. In the middle of disaster, they cried out to the one whose rules they chose to break. And this incredible heavenly father didn't chastise them. He sent a deliverer. So the message of judges is the heart is desperately wicked. We are desperately wicked, but you have a good, good father who will answer every time you call on him. Satan did what he wanted when he was one of the the archangels. He was kicked out of heaven. So why would you, why would you want to be like Satan and do what you want to do? Isn't that aiming a little low? Cause he gets to spend eternity in hell. I want to do what I want and I want to burn in hell. That's what you really ought to say. It might keep you from doing a few things, huh? Why don't we aim a little higher and say that our good father. When I called my dad, that time I was in jail, he came and got me and he paid my bail and took me home. We didn't talk the whole way home. I just went to bed. He went to bed. Next day I got up and, and we were working together and, and I heard my dad sniffing. My dad doesn't cry. And we're working on the roof. And I said, Dad, what, what's the matter? He said, nothing. I pestered him a little bit. Dad was worried that I had ruined my future. He was worried that, that I had a scholarship to college. The only way I was going to get to go to Baylor was with this. He thought I was going to lose my scholarship because if I had been prosecuted, had that, you know, I'd broken my father's heart. Because I was going to do what I wanted to do. Your heavenly father is waiting for you to call out to him. Would you bow your heads for just a moment? I want you to pray silently where you are. Just pray this in your mind if you would. Heavenly father, is there some area where I'm trying to do my own thing instead of what you want me to do? And then if you would consider praying this prayer, Heavenly Father, help me to have the desire to follow you with all of my heart. 
God, I pray that you change us from, from a group that, that does what we, we think is right to a group who desperately seeks you for counsel, for wisdom. You said if we lack wisdom, all we have to do is ask and you'll grant it generously without finding fault. So help us to be a wise people who seeks the counsel of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.